0: We are uh, in the middle of a series, a teaching series in the letter in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, now would be a great time to open it up and turn with us to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we are tonight. We're making our way uh, consecutively through this book of the Bible. Not because that's the only way to do it, to preach straight through books of the Bible, but we do value that. And by and large, that will be our practice is to preach directly through various books of the Bible. There's a couple of reasons for that. It gives you a better sense of what the book as a whole is about. Uh, that's one good reason to go straight through books of the Bible. And also, it's helpful because it prevents me from just preaching about whatever I want. I have to preach whatever comes next in the text. And uh, so it's very good for pastors as well to preach through whole books. So tonight, as we were making our way through Ephesians, we get to chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. So what we'll do is I'll read this passage out loud for us. It's going to be printed uh, imaged up there on the screen. You can look at it in your Bibles as well. And then we'll pray and then we'll jump right in. Okay, so this is God's word for you tonight. No matter what's happened to you this week, no matter where you find yourselves right now, this word is relevant, it's meaningful, and it's true. So give it your attention. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise as Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand this portion of his word. Our Father, again tonight, we meet here. We meet here not just with one another, but also with you. We believe it to be true, our God, that you are present in this place right now. And that you desire to speak to us. That you desire to see us grow more and more like Jesus. That you desire to see transformation and renewal and change take place in our lives lives. And yet, Father, so often it's hard to believe that what happens here in these times together in church really makes any difference. And so we ask tonight that you would help us to believe no matter what we've been through this week, no matter where we are spiritually, no matter our emotional state, no matter who's sitting to our right or to our left, help us to believe that you want to speak to us tonight and indeed that you will speak through your word. And Father, we pray that we would have ears to hear. We pray that we would have eyes to see. We pray that you would give us hearts that are soft enough to take in the message that you, in your wisdom and by your spirit, will speak to us tonight through the Bible. And Lord, so often we struggle. So often we are unbelieving. So often we wake up on Monday having heard something on Sunday and continuing to live as if it isn't true and as if it isn't relevant. And so God, we ask tonight again that you would help us to see that the Bible in all of its wonder and in all of its glory as it points us to the work of Jesus is both real and true. Lord, may that be evident tonight as we examine, just for a few minutes together, these verses. We need your help, Spirit, so come and work, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that is unique about Christianity as a religion, in fact, there are many things that are unique about Christianity, but one of the unique things about Christianity is that it is very, very deeply concerned with your everyday, ordinary lives, In fact, large portions of the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible, are wrapped up with those exact issues. Most religions of the world aren't like that. Uh, Many of the Eastern religions will say, you know, actually what's important is you forgetting about your ordinary and normal life and seeking to achieve nirvana or whatever mystical experience will make you realize that all else is an illusion. Um, Religions like, say, Islam aren't super concerned with the mundane, ordinary details of your life as a family man or woman, as a parent, or as a child, or as a worker. They're concerned that you obey Allah first and foremost, and really a lot of other things kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, Liberal traditions and current worldviews that are popular among the postmoderns in our society don't really value, in a lot of ways, the ordinary mundane details of people's lives. They value what they seem to call and what they seem to think is extraordinary and powerful and important. And so people that they don't view as extraordinary and powerful and important are oppressed and crushed, even though they may not mean to do that. Christianity, however, I think is unique. And it gives me great encouragement and confidence to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible, God himself cares deeply about your day-to-day experience. No matter what you're going through, if you're a stay-at-home mom, If you're a fourth or a fifth or a sixth grader, if you're working a hundred hours a week, if you're dropping bombs in an airplane, if you're doing whatever you're doing as you're driving to and from work, as you're going to the grocery store, as you're trying not to get mad at your kids for disobeying you for the tenth time today about the same issue, as you're trying to not get mad at your parents for continuing to harp on you about the same issues, Jesus cares God knows and cares about the ordinary events of your daily life. And if you read the Bible, especially a letter like Ephesians, you'll see, especially in the last few chapters, the chapters that we've been in for the last few weeks, Paul talking about very ordinary, very mundane tasks. He talks about what it's like to be a dad, what it's like to be a mom, what it's like to be a child, what it's like to be a worker, how you can be a Christian and... Live well in all the things that God has called you to. And so tonight, as we continue to look at these verses uh, in the latter half of Ephesians, I want you to keep that in mind. How important your day-to-day experience, how important the ordinary details of your life are, not just to you, but to God. They're important to God. The way that Paul has been describing the ordinary Christian life for us in these few verses is through this overarching metaphor of walking, Remember that? All the way back in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, in light of everything I've said to you about the gospel in the first half of Ephesians, I want you to walk. I want you to live in a Christian way. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which God has called you. And he's gone to talk about numerous things, numerous details, numerous facets of life that all of us from one time to another will face and experience. And that continues tonight. Tonight, Paul writes to us, continuing to think about what he 's been saying in the previous verses about walking in the darkness as opposed to walking in the light, and in these verses that i 've just read he 's talking about walking in the light and what that looks like and I want you to see, and again, this is to me very striking and very important and very encouraging that the things paul 's writing about here really I, I want you to see at the end of the sermon are regarding your everyday Christian experience. If you're here and you're a Christian, these are things that are going to be super relevant to you now, okay? So Paul's talked about the gospel. He said, here's what Jesus has done for rebels and for sinners. Jesus died on a cross, and in his death, it's not just an ordinary Jewish guy dying 2,000 years ago somewhere just outside of Jerusalem. In the death of Jesus, God shows up in anger and in wrath, dumping it on Jesus, He dumps it on Jesus because of the sin of the world. He dumps his anger on Jesus at the cross because you and I are guilty. We're rebels. We're sinners. But we don't face the punishment for our sin. Jesus faced it for us. And because that is true, because Jesus died in your place on the cross and was raised again from the dead on the third day, your life is different. The gospel, the gospel changes everything. And what Paul's saying here is that after you believe the gospel, you begin to live life differently. After you believe the gospel, you begin to obey. He does not say, obey, live life differently, and then God will be happy with you. He says, God in Jesus is infinitely and fully happy with you. Therefore, obey. Therefore, walk. Tonight, I want to show you two things that Paul tells us about how we are to walk. He calls us first to walk in the Spirit every day with wisdom. To walk in the Spirit every day with wisdom. Secondly, he calls us to walk in the Spirit on Sundays with joy. To walk in the Spirit every day with wisdom. To walk in the Spirit on Sundays with joy. Two big points. You ready? I see some nodded heads, and I'm going to say that's fine. I'm going to keep going. Um, Paul tells us first in these first, really the first two verses, 15 and 16, he says four things that really are all making the same point. Look at those verses with me. Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise but as unwise. So first, look carefully how you walk, verse 16. Make the best use of the time, verse 17. Do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the Lord's will is. Those four phrases are really slightly different ways of saying the same thing. God is calling you, as a believer in Jesus, to live wisely, to live with wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is not just the accumulation of intellectual knowledge. It's not just earning a PhD in life. Wisdom is it's not just what you know, but wisdom is the ability to skillfully apply what you know in everyday situations. Wisdom is the skill of living well. And wisdom is is very, very difficult to attain, even though it's something that Paul calls us to here. Um, To be wise is to to demonstrate a certain skill and a certain ability in facing the circumstances and struggles that come your way with dignity and with authority and with grace. There's a book that I read recently uh, called Cutting for Stone. It's a great book. It's by a medical doctor named Abraham Verghese. And the book is about uh, two brothers who grow up in a third world country in Africa. I can't remember the exact country, but they grow up on a, like a medical clinic out in the bush, out in the middle of nowhere, and are trained from their earliest days to be medical doctors, to be physicians. And it turns out that both of these brothers are highly skilled. They're, they're brilliant. They're, they're very sophisticated in their intellect, their ability to understand like organic chemistry, like the classes we all dropped out of or most of us dropped out of like our freshman year in college back when we thought we were going to be pre-med, and then we actually took a class, and we're like, "You know what? I'm going to go business. You know what? I'm going to be a pastor instead." Um, those are the classes these guys excelled in. Um, and so they're brilliant. They're, they're sophisticated, they're well-trained. But the book uh, goes to some length to describe how they acquired wisdom and skill as physicians. It didn't come in their medical training in the classroom. It came, rather, in their time at the operating table and in the clinic in a third world country in sub-Saharan Africa. They they learned skill as physicians. They learned how to be wise doctors, really, as they operated on people, through a trial by fire, through gaining valuable experience. And, And it's the same for us in the Christian life. We learn wisdom as we experience life. And wisdom is what it looks like, in large part, to walk by the Spirit. Now, why do we need wisdom? Paul tells us in the very, uh, what verse is that at? Verse 16. He said, be wise, not unwise. Make the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Now, I think what Paul's getting at there is this. This world is very complex in its brokenness. This world is full of broken people who are very complex. And this world is full of broken systems that are very complex. And when you face the reality of this world, it is not easy to live it well. The devil is very cunning. The devil is very crafty. And the devil usually will throw evil our way in ways that aren't obvious, but in ways that are opaque and mysterious and strange. You know, I see this all the time as a pastor. I think about it this way. I've never one time in my relatively young ministry, but I've been around preachers my whole life, and I've never heard of this happening. I've never had a guy come up to me and say, for example, Pastor Luke, listen, I've got a, I've got a dilemma. Here's the dilemma. There's this guy at work that's really bothering me, and I, I want to murder him. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking about hatching a plan to commit a homicide against this guy, and I'm wondering just what you think about that. you think I should do that or not? I've never had an experience like that. Where someone comes and they're really struggling with an issue that is fairly obvious on the surface of the Bible. You know, you're not supposed to kill people, in case you weren't aware of that. I think most of you are, but thou shalt not murder, one of the Ten Commandments. Most of the time when we face evil days, it doesn't come across that obviously. It requires wisdom. It doesn't require wisdom to know that killing someone is wrong and that you shouldn't do it. But most of the situations that you face in your life are not going to be that simple. They're going to require wisdom. They're going to require you looking carefully how you walk, making the best use of your time, not being foolish, and understanding the Lord's will. Now, I think this brings up something that's really interesting and really important, really, for us to understand as we think about walking by the Spirit every day. 90% more or less... Of the decisions that you make in your life are not going to be decisions where you can point to one particular verse in the Bible and say, This verse tells me to do this in this circumstance, therefore I'm going to do it. You know, this verse says, Thou shalt not murder, therefore I'm not going to murder. But most of the decisions that you make in your life are not going to have a specific, explicit biblical reference that tells you what to do. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is somehow less important. It means that the Bible is more important to know. It means that the Bible gives general principles and rules that we are to wisely apply in the infinite number of circumstances in which we can find ourselves in life. The situations that you're facing, listen, the situations and questions that you're asking, that you're struggling with in life are questions like this. Where should I send my children to school? Um, Should I keep this job or quit? Should I take this new job in a different city or not? Should I marry this person? And when should I marry this person? Um, should we start trying to have children? And when should we start trying to have children? Should we buy this house or should we buy a smaller house and save some money? Should we buy that piece of land, hopefully one day to build on it? The Bible is not going to give you Second Hesitations chapter 14. That's a made-up book, by the way, in case you didn't know. And tell you, okay, this says I should build on that property in the year 2019. Because that's not the way the Bible works. Most of the decisions you face, you're not going to find an explicit reference in the Bible for. Therefore, you need wisdom. Therefore, you need wisdom. Um, you know, actually, that's, that's part of the way that I think God has designed his revelation to us in Scripture. You know, the, the Christian life is not... It's not a mechanical one-two punch. The Christian life is not like, you know, we're working on an assembly for floor manufacturing widgets. And all that's required is I put item A on top of item B and screw to the right so that the widget is complete. And then I do it again. The Christian life is not like that. The Christian life requires us to think in complex ways. It requires us not just to be able to answer the questions that we face in life, but, and this is where the Bible becomes more relevant, to be able to answer the questions of why we have these questions. Think about it this way. The real question is, should I or isn't, should I or should I not marry this person? The real question is, why do I want to marry this person? Is marrying this person going to enable me to serve God and to serve others well? Is taking this new job something that's going to produce more idolatry in my life or less? You know, the Bible is somewhat unclear about the particularities we face in life. The reason for that is because the Bible wants us to deal with our motivations. It wants us to deal with with heart issues. It wants us to be wise, you see. It wants us to make the most of the time. And to me, that's a really encouraging thing. It's really encouraging to know that the Bible contains verses that just say, look carefully how you walk, and don't say, Luke, you guys should try to have another child in 18.5 months. And, and the reason that's encouraging to me is because it shows me that it shows me that God understands the reality of the complexity of life that I'm facing. You know, it would be, first of all, impossible to have a one-to-one command correspondence with everything that you face in life. You can't like look at a book this big or whatever and determine exactly what to do. But, but God knows that life is difficult. He knows that life is complex. He knows that life has all sorts of uncertainties. And so he's designed his word to come to us and give us guidelines and give us principles to learn to use well and wisely in life. And he's also given us his spirit to help us apply and understand these verses in the various situations in which we find ourselves. You see, God is very concerned, again, with the every day of your life. And what Paul is saying here, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, is that you should walk every day, every day in the Spirit with wisdom. Now, the second thing that Paul mentions here is that we should not just walk every day in the Spirit with wisdom, but beginning in verse 19, he says, we should walk on Sundays... In the Spirit with joy. Now, initially, this seems to be completely irrelevant to the prior couple of verses. But really, they're tied together, I think, in this way. They're both talking about, again, everyday Christian experience. The circumstances and issues that we face every day are going to require us walking in the Spirit and growing in wisdom. And when we gather weekly to worship on Sundays as God's people, we must walk in the Spirit so that we will grow in our joy. And really what Paul's getting at here in these last two verses is the idea that joy fundamentally and maybe even primarily in Christian worship is expressed through singing. You see it there? He says, I want you to, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And then those next two verses give four ways, four verbs that are dependent upon that main verb, be filled and these four verbs are explaining what it means to be filled with the Spirit. A little biblical interpretation there. So, be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? Verse 19, address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Second, sing. Third, make melody in your hearts to the Lord. Fourth, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like to walk by the Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit continually? It looks like joining with God's people, which is clearly the idea that Paul has in mind here, and singing. It looks like worshiping through song. And so as we think real briefly for just a few seconds about these ideas, there's there's three things I want to share with you, um, three things about singing and how singing helps us know we're walking in the Spirit. We're being filled with the Spirit with joy, okay? First, singing is essential and necessary for our joy, for our walking in the Spirit, because singing is an appropriate expression. Singing is an appropriate expression of our joy in the gospel, You know, when you think about it, singing like the way we do it at church is really weird. You ever thought about, like, what other context in life the people stand up and all face the same direction and sing songs out loud? Maybe at, like, sporting events where we sing the National Anthem or Sweet Caroline at Red Sox games or something like that. But there's not many other circumstances in our normal lives or even in extraordinary lives where people get together and stand up and sing out loud, like, Whether you can sing or not, you stand up and sing out loud. So why, why does Paul here and in other places tell us that when you have joy in the gospel, when you're walking in the spirit, that's going to show up in singing? Why is singing an appropriate expression of joy? A couple of reasons. For one, singing is, singing is just the way people express emotion. There's never been a culture in the history of the universe that has lasted for more than 10 seconds that didn't have music, that didn't have songs. And that's because just part of the way God has wired humanity is that one way we express our emotion is through music. Another reason that singing is an appropriate expression of joy is because when we're singing, we are we are helping ourselves to recite and remember the truths of the gospel. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, like for example in Exodus, after Moses leads the Israelites out of the Red Sea, they all say, oh my gosh, that was amazing, thank you Lord, I can't believe you redeemed us. And then what happens? They sing. Old man Moses, right there on the shores of the Red Sea on the other side, gets up, pulls out his baton, maybe not, and starts singing and leading God's people in a song. And the reason that singing is an appropriate expression of our joy in the Gospels is because singing helps us remember the Gospel. If you have kids, you know that this is true. You know, um, for example, my 20-month-old Ben. I can teach Ben to count to 10 over a period of time like this. I could sit down and say, okay, Ben, one, repeat after me, one, two, or I can put on an Elmo app on my iPad where Elmo sings to 10, and Ben will know how to count to 10 in about 8.3 minutes. Whereas for me, trying to teach him by making him recite 1 through 10 back and forth is going to take forever. Singing helps us remember. And that's part of the reason why God tells us to do it. It helps us to remember the gospel. It's just the way people are wired. It helps us to remember the gospel. And third, singing is an appropriate expression of joy because singing is holistic. That is, it engages our whole person. It's not just our intellect that's at work when we're singing. We're, we're really singing. You know, when I sing, I kind of go like this. And Marianne always makes fun of me. I, I do this. And I love to play air guitar, so I'm trying to resist doing that. Maybe I shouldn't resist. Maybe I should just play air guitar. But singing is a holistic experience. You know, medical studies have actually shown that singing, uh, singing when it's used like to help people in insane asylums and in prisons and um, To help children who are struggling with illness. Singing is a great therapy. It's, it's therapeutic. Um, because it literally like works on our brain. Our brain balances our emotion by releasing endocrine into our body and helping us. Music does that. And God knows all this about us. And so God tells us to sing. Because when we sing, listen, when we sing, we are saying, the gospel is true and it makes me joyful. There's a reason Paul doesn't say talk to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because talking does not have the same impact as singing. Okay? So the reason we're to sing is because singing is an appropriate expression of joy in the gospel. Another reason is because singing is a showcase of the heart. Now look in the text. We address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, what? With all your heart. It's hard to avoid this conclusion if you read the Bible, especially if you read the Psalms and texts like this. The level to which you sing joyfully in worship reflects the level to which you believe and understand the gospel. Singing is a very real barometer of your grasp of Jesus' love for you. Singing is not just an appropriate expression of joy. Singing is, in fact, a commanded expression of joy. And, and when we sing, we're revealing to a certain degree how much we love Jesus, how much we understand what he's done for us. The level of our audible pitch, the level of our voices when we sing in worship with God's people is showing, is showing the level of our heart commitment to Jesus. It's impossible to avoid that truth if you read Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and many psalms you know, you sing about what you inevitably love. C.S. Lewis talks about that all the time. Let me read this quote. I can't remember what book this is. I think it's The Four Loves, but he writes this, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Did you hear that? All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness, or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside. Listen, when Jesus is beautiful to you, singing flows out. You know, I'm going to say it. That's why a lack of singing or standing like a bump on a log in a worship service, is at the best highly problematic and at the worst rebellious. Singing is a command, and singing is a showcase of your delight in Jesus. The final reason, however, final reason, stay with me, why singing is important, why singing is an expression that we're walking in the Spirit is because singing has both a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Look there in verse 19. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing, now you would expect him to say here, addressing God with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we do obviously sing praise to God, but that's not what Paul says, is it? He says we address one another. One another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. So think of it this way. This, this may seem obvious on the surface, but I don't think it is. When you are singing in church, you're not just singing to and for God. You're singing to and for the people who are standing around you. Singing is... Singing is a way in which we don't just worship God, but we encourage one another to believe that the gospel is true. We address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making music with our hearts to God together. And so for you and for me, and I've been guilty of this, to say the reason I don't sing very well or very loud in church is because I'm just not any good. That is a massive exercise in missing the point. The point of your singing is first, Godward and second, other word. When you sing, you're encouraging your brother and your sister. So if you don't think you can sing, belt it out. Belt it out, because it's not about you. It's about others. God wants us to walk. He wants us to walk every day in wisdom. And he wants us to walk on Sundays as we're filled with the Spirit in joy. And that joy primarily manifests itself through our music, through our singing, through our praise of him in the congregation together. And let me close with this. If you feel overwhelmed by these commands of Paul, then I want you to know that you will only walk in wisdom And you will only sing with joy when you understand that Jesus first walked in wisdom for you. And when you understand that God at this very moment is singing over you. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that. That's not a second hesitation. That's a real Bible book, by the way. Zephaniah 3 tells us that God the Father sings over us in delight. Listen, when you sing, you are in a very real way reflecting not just the truth of the gospel, but the very image and character of God himself. And when you walk in wisdom, you are reflecting not just the character of the gospel, but the very image of Jesus who came and walked in wisdom before us. Because Jesus walked in wisdom even to death on a cross, you can walk in wisdom by the Spirit's power. And because at this moment God because he's delighted in you and loves you deeply in Jesus, because at this moment God is singing over you, lavishing his love upon you, you in turn, when you believe that, can sing back to him with joy. We're called to walk, to walk in the spirit every day with wisdom, to walk in the spirit on Sundays with joy, but we're not called to walk alone or to sing alone. We're called to walk after the one who has already walked and to sing under the one who is presently singing over you. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are a singing God. (laughs) Um, That is uh, difficult and remarkable and strange and astounding that you look at us and you sing. You take that kind of delight in us. And yet we know that that's only true because of who we are in Jesus on our own. We are fallen and broken, but through our faith in him, we have a new life. We are seen by you as completely righteous, and you love us. And Father, because the gospel is true, we must therefore live in a certain way. You've called us to walk. You've called us to be wise, to make the best use of the time, not to be foolish, You've called us to be discerning, and you've called us to gather together and worship you joyfully through singing and other means. And Lord, sometimes we get tired of that. Sometimes we don't want to do it. Sometimes we're completely befuddled and confused. And yet, Father, we know that you're never going to leave us and that you're always going to help us and that the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. So come and be with us now. Teach us by your Spirit to walk, to walk in wisdom, And to walk in joy. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.